Stanford University. It's always kind of intimidating um, to talk to your colleagues and people that you see in different venues. I mean, I'm yeah, used to giving lots of lots of talks in other places, and somehow it's it's strange when I'm. I don't know if I've, I've done this a few times, I guess, before, giving a kind of a, a, a lecture to your friends and colleagues. Um, and it is, it, it's a slightly different um, um, I don't know, genre. Um, and, and what I'd like to do is to give you a, because I feel like I could give you something that's more of a, an insider talk, maybe. And I, I feel like there's an expectation that we would have a little bit of that. Uh, in addition to kind of the formal presentation. Um, so I'm going to try to do that and just give, because this is very much what, I, what I'm going to talk about today um, is, is very much a work in progress. In fact, the, the truth is that we really don't know what we're doing here. Um, <clears throat> but we do know that the, the issue of uh, common core standards, or the common core state standards, as it's more precisely uh, called, um, and English language learners is a very, very much a, a front burner issue right now in policy and practice. Um, and, uh, and I've been given the opportunity to, to work on, on that. And so that, that's my main obje objective is to share with you what I'm doing, trying to do in, in this area and framing it. Um, and, but, I, but I want to put it in a kind of historical uh, perspective. Uh, and this gives you a little bit of historical perspective. Um, th these two pictures are, are really kind of me mean a lot to me. Uh, one of them, 1974, that picture was not actually, I've never verified that this was taken in the early 70s. It comes from the San Francisco Historical <coughs> Society. Uh, and, um, but it, they have no date for the picture. But it's, uh, but what, what this picture represents is the closest thing to um, Lau v. Nichols, a unanimous Supreme Court decision uh, in 1974, which was a class action suit brought on behalf of San Francisco school children, uh, a, a class of about 7,000 Chinese school children, uh, that uh, basically is the, the basis for a lot of our current laws and policies. Uh, it was uh, basically the, the, the important piece of that ruling uh, was that uh, it, it's a civil rights violation uh, of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act uh, for uh, schools not to provide some sort of appropriate service uh, for English language learners, not the same. That's the main uh, argument that they made, that it had to be, had, have uh, just not providing the same textbooks and the same instruction, but it has to be adapted to the needs of English language learners, then called limited English proficient students, still called limited English proficient students in lots of, lots of places in the law. Uh, so that kind of anchors the, 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 the entrance point. It also, 1974 also happens to be the date of my first publication. So th this, it's sort of scary because I start putting today's date and for a while, I felt like 1980s, you know, 1990s, that was only 20 years ago. Now we're approaching 40 years, um, <coughs> which kind of makes me feel not, not as young as I used to feel. And, um, 
And then 2011 is, um, is a picture of, of, actually this is a, a picture that I took of, of kids uh, from Planada, which is a small town that you pass through. If you know Planada? I see some people nodding. And uh, uh, some kids from Planada, which is a com small community that you drive through uh, right outside Merced if, on your way to Yosemite. And um, these are kids from Planada at, at, at Yosemite. This is taken from a place called Inspiration Point. Um, and it's a, it's a little uh, small program that I, I helped start with a, with a rock climber named Ron Kauk, who's lived in Yosemite his, pretty much his whole life. And uh, we bring kids from the Merced community up to, up to Yosemite. And, and part of this is, and I, I sort of digress to this just to say that a, a big part of this is around giving access to students to, um, who, who are likely to get access to, to watered-down versions of, of the curriculum and content, um, which is what the school children in, in San Francisco were receiving in the 70s. And unfortunately, our programs often still provide uh, watered-down uh, content uh, access to English learners because we still haven't quite figured out how, how, to, how to deliver it. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, I kind of contrast the picture of these kids in Planada or from Planada in Yosemite to sort of the real thing experience that you want kids to have rather than being given a copy of the February edition of National Geographic, which has a photo of Yosemite um, on the cover. And that, that kind of giving access to rich, real experiences uh, is what, um, what we uh, aspire to do for the, the growing number of students for whom access through English is, is, uh, uh, poses barriers. Um, and it's a challenge that was you know, kind of framed as early as the 70s and actually even prior to that, but, but kind of punctuated by the uh, unanimous Supreme Court ruling in 74. Um, and a lot of this is not, it's not just about language. That is, we often think, and laws and policies often think of these as sequential processes. First you learn English, and then once you learn English, you can have content, mm -hmm. because until you do, the, you, and so we, we've, as a, as a field, we've struggled uh, in how to coordinate sort of the, the linkage between uh, language uh, and academic content. Uh, we've struggled with instruction through the native language while the kids are learning English, which is a form of <coughs> various forms of bilingual education. Um, that brings out, by the way, as somebody who's worked in this field for a long time, lots of crazy people. And it gets into, <laughs> into lots of, lots of <coughs> deep, heated, passionate politics around uh, language of instruction. And uh, we can go there and fight that, and we have. Uh, but that's just one of m many attempts to say, well, how do you give access to the real thing, to content, uh, to uh, students who are in the process of learning, uh, learning English? Um, I'm going to disappoint those of you who came thinking, you know, I'm going to give a, um, an empirical talk. Uh, this is really not um, uh, an empirical talk, although a lot of what we do is based on <coughs> empirical research, and, and etc. Um, but I will go back to some of the core foundational um, sort of 
framing of issues that this field relies on and uh, in which I think the Common Core uh, <coughs> provides an opportunity to kind of uh, to, to elaborate on. And that is, um, Lauby Nichols said, you know, you have to provide some kind of appropriate uh, uh, access to services for English learners. It also said it can't be just language, it's language and content. Um, and it's an issue that uh, Janice mentioned in the introduction that I was a, I'm an experimental psycholinguist. And I, I may still, I may be the only experimental psycholinguist in this room. <laughs> or, or maybe there are some aspiring experimental psycholinguists, but it's, um, I, I always have to, when I mention experimental psycholinguistics, have to refer to my daughter when we lived in Palo Alto and when she was little, uh, used to scare her friends uh, by telling them that her dad was an experimental psycholinguist. <laughs> because, you know, that wasn't a term that people understood. They knew lawyers, you know, they work for a startup, they're a, you know, software engineer, but experimental psycholinguist sort of conjures up images of, you know, deranged polyglots. And, um, and uh, I, I may be one, but I, um, but, a, but an experimental psycholinguist tries to use sort of linguistic and psychological theory to bring together concepts and, and, and language. And, um, and while my training was sort of in the, the more theoretical part, then, then there are sort of different ways of approaching this, and I, I <coughs> just for, uh, for this PowerPoint, just pulled out some <laughs> very yellowing books from my bookshelf uh, by people like Noam Chomsky and uh, and Austin and and um, some publications from the Center for Applied Linguistics. All of which have hovered around how to define whether you you define it sort of cognitively or um, or more sort of socioculturally. Whatever it is, what what the field is trying to do is to think about you know ways of thinking about the the, the configurational relationship between uh, language on the one hand and concepts on, on the other, language and meaning. Um, and so the, the, and the common core in some ways <coughs> allows us to do this. This is just a slide of Lauby Nichols. Um, this is a, and so I'm going to give you a little bit of the, the, that policy history that leads up, us up to this day of where, how to think about the common core standards. Um, the the way in which the Office for Civil Rights, for example, uh, in the U.S. Department of Education, how they define <coughs> appropriate uh, intervention or appropriate treatment of students with who are English language learners is actually based not on Lauby Nichols, but a sort of a some, somewhat complicated little sidestep forward uh, legal. Um, ruling uh, by this this woman judge, uh, Judge Randall, who uh, in the Fifth Circuit Court decision, Castaneda v. Picard, basically wrote an opinion that defined what appropriate action was <coughs> of an educational entity like a school district in addressing the needs of English language learners. And, and she was... Um, this is one of my, my, my favorite uh, uh, decisions or opinions uh, in that it really helps, I think, put together theory and, uh, and research and implementation of programs in a, in a, in a, 
uh, very helpful way from the viewpoint of a, of a researcher working in, in the policy area. And that is, um, she said basically, she set up what she called, you know, sort of standards by which you would judge whether appropriate action is being taken. Uh, and the three prongs of this Castaneda ruling were, one, that the, the approach taken by the district be raised uh, based on sound educational theory. Uh, the second is that, it, that the theory be implemented with adequate uh, resources. And the third, that after a period of time, that the programs are shown to be uh, addressing the, um, uh, the, 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 the problems. Uh, and the, sort of a, an implicit fourth prong of the, of the, of the, stand, uh, of the ruling was that uh, after a period of time, if you haven't been successful, that you go back and revisit the implementation or you revisit the theory. And so it's a, it's a system that is probably smarter than most most judges. Have. Well, I shouldn't say that, but uh, but for you know, in terms of of a judge thinking, what's the appropriate role for a court to take as a remedy? Uh, and and so she said, you know, we don't know enough to say it should be bilingual education. We don't know whether what you know what it is, but whatever it is, it should be based on some reasonable theory implementation. Uh, does it have outcomes that you can measure, et cetera, and, and you go back and correct it. And so for, <coughs> from a research point of view, sort of how you put together language and meaning, language and content, in a meaningful system, uh, is, it's, you know, what are the tools that you use to sort of think about and frame programs, uh, implement them uh, adequately, and then assess them? outcomes. So it's a, it's a very useful ruling and, and I know um, other uh, colleagues in, in other fields who really uh, are, are envious in a sense of those of us who work in the English learner area of having this kind of a legal basis. There is a sad part of this which is that when these prongs have been really tested in <coughs> courts, um, it turns out it really depends on the judge in front of whom it's being tested. And so it doesn't always work the way you, you want it. Um, it. In other words, it, it doesn't have a whole lot of teeth depending on, on the judge that, that you go in front of. Um, and these days, it's, it's very hard to get, <coughs> get favorable rulings around that. The, uh, this is uh, just a slide to say a, a big piece of the dom you know, the, this is the, basically the time suck of bilingual education. Every time you bring up native language, you bring out forces like U.S. English, anti-immigrant sentiments, you know, xenophobia, these things kind of accompany uh, the, the, the mention of, the, of, of bilingual education. There was a Senate staffer that I've worked with uh, uh, on, on the current ongoing reauthorization of, of No Child Left Behind or ESEA Elementary and Secondary Education Act, uh, who um, uh, said that basically there are staffers in Congress mostly from the conservative side, who basically do word searches for the B word, bilingual, um, just through the bill, just to knock them out. And so this is just sort of part of the you know, politics as usual that, that goes on. And, uh, and this slide in 1998 was California's version of, of it, the, what's called, was called the UNS Initiative, also called English for the Children, cleverly titled. 
uh, which uh, banned bilingual education for all practical purposes in California. So the whole language of instruction thing has sort of been there as a, as a theory. It hasn't <coughs> held us very well. Now, kind of moving forward to the common core standards, the, the, the sort of the groundwork for this was laid, um, I hate to, to say this, how long ago this was, it was when Elliot Eisner was a very young man in uh, 1983, uh, Nation at Risk report, <coughs> which really set in motion at least the, the current sort of basis for uh, what we call standards-based reform. And the Common Core is really just sort of a, you know, a form of standards-based reform uh, with some steroids on it. So, um, and this was uh, a, a group that, um, uh, <coughs> that called for, uh, for reform in a very prolonged uh, uh, reform movement, really, that, that has lasted to this day. So that's, you know, uh, almost 30 years, right? And, um, and back then, this is just another bit of history. I, I show this slide just so that I could um, show off my very stylish sweater there. <laughs> which, um, and also to say that I didn't have hair then either. That, um, but we're, we're a little less, more motley group, I would say, um, than this. <laughs> but, th but this was one of the first, first moments when I got pulled into um, serious federal uh, education policy. And uh, I think I, I, somewhere around there is when I first met Janice, uh, because she, she was working in Washington, and, and we, <coughs> we hooked up on some, some ELL and, and Title I issues. Um, and um, but the, the, but the whole issue of, of how you include prior to this uh, how, how you define educational approaches was bilingual education or not bilingual education you know Title VII which was the the piece of ESEA that dealt with limited English proficient students was sort of a separate piece and and kind of a unrelated to central so-called central reform efforts which were mostly around around Title I or Chapter I at that time. Uh, it's still a marginal issue actually, but but you know then it was even more marginal. Um, and uh, and this was an effort to try to bring in uh, English language learners into uh, standards-based reform. Uh, this picture was actually taken at the Early House where we had the reform and if you know the history of Early House, we were probably being bugged by the CIA. Um, <laughs> And uh, so there are probably some some microphones behind us. Anyway, the, the that led to the 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 pres predecessor to the No Child Left Behind it was called the Amer Improving America's Schools Act, uh, which was the initiative of the Clinton administration. It was preceded by a aspirational bill called Goals 2000, which in 2011 sounds interesting. You know. As a, <laughs> That this was like this long, long term. When, when by 2000, I guess the U.S. was going to be top of the world on all these international indicators. Um, Ed, Ed's sitting there saying, "Oh boy, we're getting old." <laughs> um, anyway, the uh, but this is uh, <coughs> but really no, uh, improving America's Schools Act was the bill that set into place standards. Right? It didn't have a whole lot of accountability around it. No Child Left Behind brought <coughs> accountability to AYP especially that, that came in. But the whole framework around state standards uh, was, was set in motion um, back in 
the, the, the 90s with standard, uh, <coughs> with um, Improving America's Schools Act and the idea of English language learners being included in the assessment system for the content standards uh, with this very unwieldy language about you know assess students being included in a uh, in, in assessment using uh, assessments in a language and manner and form most likely to yield valid and reliable assessments or whatever is kind of a, a, a language that was inserted in the in the 90s um, that kind of persisted continued no child left behind is actually even still on in the language of the current uh, reauthorization talk and the um, what what it had was oh yeah here's that language inclusion I, I kind of highlighted in, in big words the the big words the, the main words of they have lots of big words that don't mean anything in this bill but the uh, words like inclusion uh, that that's under section one it's under title one section 1111 is, is title one but inclu included in title one language is the inclusion of limited English proficient students uh, through the assessments to these sort of relatively um, uh, state by state uh, standards envisioned under No Child Left Behind. Uh, <coughs> this piece here is, is really, the, the disaggregated is a big piece and it's the one that, you know, everybody loves to hate No Child Left Behind. Uh, the advocacy community is very much uh, uh, wedded to and and, and uh, you know kind of the the, bit, the, bit, the favorite part of it regardless of what you think about No Child Left Behind is this disaggregation piece that uh, unless you have this disaggregation by status including limited English proficient uh, is um, you know and that combined with the accountability piece which No Child Left Behind introduced uh, is is what has kept the, the spotlight on uh, the status of English language learners. Um, I was just talking to Janice earlier about about how the issue of long-term English language learners, students who've been English learners for some significant period of time, usually five to se you know five to six years, uh, has become a hot topic for school districts and. If it had not been for this section here, um, the districts would not be worrying about them. Um, and right now, that the, the, the uh, uh, and it's not like it's a new problem. This is always English long-term English learners have, have always been uh, part of the uh, important sub subgroup of the English learner subgroup. Um, people just haven't paid attention to it until now because people are, are starting to pay attention to the data from English language <coughs> learners. Um, and then the third piece here, which brings us to the Common Core Standards, is this bit about aligned. So the um, so what uh, No Child Left Behind did was to introduce the idea of English language proficiency standards and assessments separate from or in addition to the content standards of Title One. So in Title One is is all of the the state standards and the uh, accountability pieces and as you know with the common core standards there's now a common denominator so to speak for those those state standards that have been adopted by 40 some states 
the English language proficiency standards is really in Title Three, and it's to show, you know, to have standards and um, and uh, assessment of English uh, proficiency development separate from the standards. Uh, and there's no common core English language proficiency standards, or no equivalent for English language development. Uh, but there is uh, a provision in, <coughs> in Title III uh, which talks about this English language proficiency uh, being aligned with the achievement of, of the academic content standards. So this, uh, this alignment issue of, of language and content uh, then says, okay, if you're going to have common content, then you also need to somehow you know, bring up and, and, and align the pieces of, of language. So the Common Core standards have come. I <laughs> pulled out a few photos from the web. Um, and the, uh, um, and I, I don't think I need to, to tell you kind of what all, all of the hype and hoopla around it. Um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of money thrown into it. And then with the race to the top, uh, <coughs> the funding, uh, competition constraints on uh, on states applying for that funding to adopt the Common Core, basically, it's a sort of de facto national uh, standards in English language arts and in math, uh, with a, a, uh, a soon-to-come science standards that are being developed by Achieve on the basis of a framework developed by the National Academy of Sciences uh, in the sciences, and and it sort of ultimately resulted in a kind of a feeding frenzy. So the uh, the feeding frenzy are, you know, every, all, everybody's in the act, right? You know, Pearson, Fordham, you know, all, all the, every organization. Um, and uh, it's a, a bit of a, a, a feeding frenzy. There is actually a lot of money thrown into it. So there, it, it is indeed a true feeding frenzy. Um, you know, hundreds <laughs> of billions of, of dollars. Uh, the two large state consortia that were formed to develop uh, assessments in a very ambitious uh, time schedule within the next three years or so uh, that uh, will we'll take the Common Core uh, standards and turn them into, into assessments. Um, so the, our group um, is, so I, I, I will, I will, um, Admit to the fact that part of part of the feeding frenzy is that I, I got some money from Gates, uh, and um, and also from the Carnegie Corporation just to, to sort of balance it out, the uh, <coughs> to uh, to work on the whole issue of Common Core and English language learners, uh, and it's you know so so this uh, for me the 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 reason why it's it's important is is that. This is, in fact, the you know the, the, the policy conversation, and if you're not um, kind of in the door, uh, kind of dealing, so to speak, with with all of the, the the it's a very complex set of issues. But if you're not in the door dealing with these issues, then you're very, you know, you are in fact not at least you you're a, a marginalized member of the the reform community and. and and so you, it's only game in town, basically, when it comes to um, access to English learners uh, within the context of, of, of schooling. And you could, you know, go for occupy, occupy the standards or some, you know, some <laughs> alternative movement. But uh, but short of that, if you're working within the system, you can't, you know, if you're not going to occupy, then 
then you have to somehow play within within this this frenzy here. So um, uh, and so I basically we we have a a, a a group. It's a very strong group of of um, kind of researchers, leaders um, in the area of the Common Core standards development as well as English language learners. Um, and uh, and we're, we're basically uh, engaging in a kind of what, what, what I call a national dialogue. Some people think we're developing English language standards in some way and, and we're not doing that. We're, but we're, what we are trying to do is to kind of engage in a national dialogue, a thoughtful dialogue that, that's systemic and that brings all of the pieces around the standards in a kind of a coherent way between linking language and, and content. And it's um, so, that, I mean, it's, it's ridiculously ambitious actually to try to do, to have a meaningful dialogue, you know, national dialogue that doesn't happen except, you know, in, uh, in things like presidential debates, I guess. The, uh, I'm going to propose three standards today, and uh, so anyway, the, uh, some of you got that. <laughs> um, the uh, the uh, so so what what we have is I have um, uh, some of the, the 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 key people involved in the development of the Common Core standards in English language arts and math, uh, and and in science, and so we have. The, the, the content, we're, we're approaching this from the perspective of content uh, as, as the sort of the foreground and saying how is it that we can uh, try to provide access to the, the high level of content envisioned by the Common Core to English language learners. Uh, we're also approaching it from the perspective of language because there is sort of you know, if you believe Chomsky, there's a separate mental organ out there called language. That, uh, whether you believe it or not, there there is a separate piece of of, of, of our our mind and our mental life and our social life that uh, is is language, and that you know the the, the two of them have to kind of inter interact, have to handshake or whatever. And so the next set of slides I'm going to show you is is sort of the the popular commercial version of our work. It has a kind of more of a, a technical base, but we've been developing, working on developing a, um, uh, you know, sort of a Geico ad version of of our work, and so <laughs> I don't know if that works or not. But uh, the uh, so we try to use language that's that's not not technical or whatever. And, I'm, and you're the first audience I'm trying this out on. Um, so you can tell me if it if it works or not. So so what we're trying to do is to, to press on 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 people people meaning policymakers, practitioners, materials developers, people who work in assessment. The the importance of of, of thinking about that linkage between language and meaning and the challenges that the Common Core is bringing, you know, placing in front of all of us um, as as educators of English language learners. So. The first is, you know, language and meaning. So you need language to do all of these things, to communicate with those around you, to express and demonstrate to others what you know and learn, such as through discussions, presentations, written work, tests, uh, to learn from teachers, peers, and textbooks, 
uh, texts such as textbook materials, things you find online. <coughs> remember and organize your thoughts about what you learn. So, okay, no jargon there so far. I'm, I'm sure I'll slip into it. So, um, but language and meaning are each complicated in their own way. So it's not just like they're two bins. Um, we need to learn thousands of words, many with multiple meanings and complex relationships to each other. Even more, we have to put these words together in phrases, sentences, charts, and diagrams that in turn build explanations, narratives, discussions, and arguments. Okay, so that's a very complex language act. Um, and, uh, and then meaning is similarly challenging. Content learning does not exist in isolation. We learn by relating new knowledge to existing knowledge. Languages are essential tool for pulling together different strands of meaning. So this is sort of to say this is all complicated. <coughs> and what about, how do we think about the new standards? The new standards meaning the Common Core and the next generation science standards. The, if you have not had a chance to read, this is a little commercial for my colleague Helen Quinn, who's, who's um, on my committee, but she also chaired the National Academy of Sciences Committee on the Science Framework. It's actually a really good read for an academy report, especially. It's, uh, it it kind of gets you excited about, about, about science um, in a way that, that very few documents, I think, can. And um, so we call them just gener generically the new standards, even though those sta science standards haven't been developed yet. But they do two things. One is they raise the bar for teaching and learning and make education more relevant to a globalized, interconnected, highly competitive world, unless you want to occupy this. Um, that's the, 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 the line, right? Um, you might want to put quotes around some of this. but um, And they pose very large challenges for everyone, in part because they call for increased language capacities in combination with content sophistication. It's really both of those two, th those two things. And, um, <clears throat> the old paradigm was basically thinking about um, content and language with mostly vocabulary, <coughs> a little bit of grammar overlapping uh, between content and language. And the new paradigm, if you go and inspect the, what the content of the Common Core standards in English, language, arts, math, and science, uh, the new science, uh, is that it has increased vocabulary, uh, it has sentence structures, complex texts, explanation, discourse, and argumentation. So just ask Jonathan Osborne about the importance of argumentation in science. It's basically a linguistic act. Right? And that is kind of moving into that center overlap between um, language and content. So this poses a series of challenges, and, and this is where it's important that, that to, to kind of point out that our work is not about standards and assessment, per se. It's really using the standards um, and their focus on the overlap between content and language to try to bring some kind of systemic attention, so not just on assessment. So um, for students, they need to do these things. They extract meaning from complex texts, explain and demonstrate their knowledge using complex language and varying contexts, engage in productive group work with peers and effective interactions with teachers. So for <coughs> students, the Common Core is going to present, especially for English language learners, this is going to be a, a, real, a real challenge. Uh, for teachers, they need to teach for understanding <coughs> and productive application, much more complicated than teaching bits and pieces of knowledge and skills. We talk about teaching for understanding 
and application of knowledge. Um, that's <coughs> that's a that's a, uh, a you know it's, it's more comp complex to do that. Uh, they need to see themselves as teachers of language in addition to their traditional identity as teachers of their content area. So <coughs> those of you who work with content area teachers, especially in secondary, I'm sure understand the challenge of, you know, I'm a math teacher, I'm a science teacher, <coughs> you know, language is dealt with elsewhere kind of uh, approach. And, and so there's some, some teacher identity um, issues. Uh, and teachers need to develop new ways of motivating and enabling students to use language in the classroom to profound to <coughs> in the content areas. Right? So ways of, of creating more productive language. The uh, challenges for support systems, uh, you know, existing ways to support teachers and <coughs> administrators, such as coaching and supervision, professional learning communities, professional development opportunities must attune to and build capacity to meet the increased demands surrounding content and language. So again, thinking systemically, all of those things that we, that are going to be demands for teachers <coughs> in order for their students to do these demanding things, those support systems are also going to have to be um, <coughs> uh, infused with this. And publishers have a big challenge in front of them, but of course, <coughs> you know, the in a very competitive environment, it's very easy to turn back to existing materials, and that's maybe pretty uh, uh, <coughs> maybe hard to resist. But the uh, existing materials are inadequately matched to the new content, particularly as new content will include far greater use of language if they're to be aligned to the standards. Uh, current strategies to make materials more accessible for ELLs, glossaries and highlighted vocabulary is a very typical way in which content text supports English learners or you know, tries to support the language piece, right? Little highlights, glossary, etc. Um, or in electronic versions, little rollover <coughs> um, definitions, etc. And they're inadequate to address the language demands inherent in new standards for you know, how do you do good argumentation or a, a good explanation. So that's, um, that's a big challenge. The challenge for assessment systems. Um, that second bullet at the top one is really the, the real difficult one, but the, you know, they have to yield valid inferences for all students at varying levels of English language proficiency. That's you know challenge now it was uh, for the old assessment as well. But the second one, they must be unbiased with respect to language, even while language has become part of the new definition of content. Right? So the construct is getting more complex. It's getting more language infused. Uh, so I don't know. I'm going to let Ed figure that one out. But <laughs> but it's a it's a it's a bit really difficult <coughs> challenge. The uh, also same with English language proficiency assessments, which are really unregulated. I mean, right now, if you look at content, I mean, I, I don't know how you would do this um, other than to declare it. So I'll declare it. If, you know, if you take the current state content assess standards and you take the current state English language proficiency standards, you know, I will, I will argue that there's more variation among English language proficiency standards across states than there is in content. Um, it's, it's less regulated. It, all it says is you have to assess in speaking, listening, reading, and writing. And um, 
and so there's a lot of variability there. But with this idea that it has to be aligned to the Common Core, they're going to be they're going to be uh, <coughs> have to reflect and measure the language demands inherent in the content standards of the Common Core. And they have to capture the depth, the breadth, depth, and complexity of receptive and productive language capacities. Um, there's a lot of potential for technology. You can be just as creative as, as anybody, as we have been here around different ways that technology and, and digital access could, could help support uh, some of this. Um, but the, the main point here is that you know, within the framework of Laubinus <coughs> or, or Castaneda, that ELLs have the right to an appropriate education, not just the same education, and this kind of is not just around teachers, but around this sort of the the, the system here. And all and cutting across all of them is is really how to think through the the, the relationship between uh, language and content. And so, what we're no, goals of the project are are really kind of multiple, but but basically, um, we're working on on providing for, for teachers tools and models to support aspects of new standards where language plays key roles. And we're working with a bunch of, of, of uh, people who are expert at doing this, trying to link those to the clusters of standards where language uh, from the Common Core and the science standards where language uh, plays a, a role. Um, around materials to provide guidance to publishers and developers and strategic ways to support ELLs. Uh, then uh, I think formative assessment is is a it will be truly a missed opportunity if if the field doesn't um, seize on the pieces of formative assessment that the Common Core sort of opens the door to, and probably will close because of the time constraints and time pressures uh, for creating these assessments. But um, but really taking the the concept of formative assessment seriously, especially in the areas of language, so. What we'll be working on is providing strategies for identifying targeted language support for ELL students at different levels of English language proficiency. And I think that's a real kind of window of opportunity that, that we, we really can't afford to, to miss. Um, the tests, uh, as I said, that's going to be a, <coughs> um, a tough one, uh, but it has to be addressed. Um, Systems, strategies for school systems to provide comprehensive support for ELLs as they implement the new standards. So there are a lot of organizations, <laughs> you know, such as the Council for Great City Schools that are working with school districts around the, the, the country trying to talk about the implementation of the Common Core. And the biggest challenge that they have is being strategic about it. All, all the experiences that I hear of school districts working with uh, with the Common Core is that um, that uh, you know they, they, they there's a, a, a tendency to um, kind of treat the Common Core as a list, another list on which you you know kind of check off all the items, and then you like everything on the list, so you don't want to throw anything out, and, and so you, you, it's difficult to, to become strategic about about <coughs> implementation and. Um, so anyway, the, the <coughs> try to help systems to be strategic. It's hard enough to, you know, teach your kids to be strategic. So, um, the uh, you know trying to teach systems to be strategic is is, is complex, but but something that, that needs to be done. And then uses of technology. Um, 
So what we're doing is um, Martha back there, Martha Castellon is, uh, if you want to, right there, she's, she's um, running this whole thing. So if it doesn't work, we're all going to blame her. And, um, the, but a, a, a big piece of this is, is a national dialogue. So we're having, you know, what we academics can do, you know, have conferences, write papers, send them around. You know, flying emails with attachments in them and that sort of thing. So we'll have the national dialogue around some of the key issues um, around this. Uh, we're going to create instructional exemplars of language and content support that really take, kind of get grafted onto the, the strategic pieces of the Common Core. Uh, Web-based community, you know, tweeting, that sort of thing. Um, District engagement in implementation, and that's that's a big part of our, our strategy is to, we're trying to identify um, a, a, a number of districts nationally that uh, we can work with to, to do some of our, our implementation as well as development work. Uh, and uh, guidance and instruction and assessment policy and practice, and that's, i.e., you know, try to, try to work with the, the assessment consortia and their there's at least one and possibly two consortia of states working on the English language proficiency uh, standards and assessment bit. So that's, um, that's the contemporary perspective on the Common Core. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I put it as sort of this is a, a major effort to try to pull together language and, and content. Um, and in, in the current version, it's, it's the sort of uh, cross-state um, uh, initiatives embedded, you know, exemplified in the Common Core. Um, we're just getting started on this work, um, and uh, what can I say? In terms of timelines, we have a, 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 a conference that's happening here in January that will bring together some of our the papers around the key issues uh, that, that I've, I've touched on. Um, we're going to have these national webinars to pump it out. Um, we'll uh, engage with school districts and there will be some research opportunities I think for those of you who are students who want to look for research opportunities around some of the work with, with school districts that we'll be doing around implementation. Uh, and we're all kind of trying to, to align it so that it, it you know, has some uh, linkage to the work that the assessment consortia are doing, and, and they, for their own good reasons, are working on an unrealistic time frame and trying to get their work done, and we're trying to sort of uh, work, work with that. So that's my kind of download of, <coughs> of information about what we're doing. Um, I would love to kind of take questions. Sorry to just kind of go through without, without um, Having time for questions, but I'm I'm around till I, Janice said one, but I actually can be here till one fifteen. So, thank you. Okay, so we have what, well, about twenty. About, well, let's say about fifteen minutes of question of Q and A. So, questions or opinions or opinions. <laughs> yes, John. Kenji, why, why is it we have English language learning as somehow a separate topic? Uh, doesn't everybody, say everybody in this room, uh, we, we have all learned the English language. And uh, why is it 
if some people at age two can speak the English language fluently, and others uh, at age two can speak the Chinese language fluently. Uh, I'm wondering, have you given thought to uh, why it's even necessary to uh, uh, have English, have ELLs? <laughs> uh, I mean, the reason is because some children are raised in an environment where English language is not spoken at age at age zero. And I'm just wondering yeah. how how for how far back you want to go yeah. in the development of English language proficiency. Do you want to yeah. start it at, at kindergarten level? Or should we start well, yeah. much younger? There, there are a couple of components to, to um, what I'll try as an answer to that. Um, you know, one is that, yes, you know, th th there's a, a large overlap between issues of English language learning as a sec second language for native speakers of other languages and um, kind of literacy and what's called academic language kinds of issues for all students, especially those who don't grow up as children of academics or <laughs> of, of teachers or, you know, where a lot of academic language is spoken in the home. Uh, so there's a lot of overlap, especially, you know, non-standard English, African-American vernacular, etc. So, so there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, but for immigrant students especially, or even non-immigrant students who grow up in non-English speaking homes, that sort of toehold into, into English is also another key part of it. The, um, the, so that's one angle. The, the other is the civil rights angle to it, which is that the Title VI of the Civil <coughs> Rights Act is around, uh, you know, kind of, it, it was around the, um, the uh, uh, equal protection uh, for national origin minorities, so equal opportunities for for national origin minorities, which is why, for example, the um, <coughs> you know if you're a, uh, American Sign Language speaker, native or na native signer, you would not be protected under this because it's not a national origin issue. Um, and but but so there is sort of a, a class of people to whom this law applies for which policies are developed and, and pieces of what we're drawing are, are come from that legacy. I'm not saying that that's the correct way to do it, but that is why this focus on, on English language learners. Um, but there's, you know, and then there's sort of the issue of individual differences. That is, even within any set of students with very similar demographic background, you're going to still get variation in learning in language, etc. So Kenji, I have a question for you. It, you mentioned that um, with Lao, it says that the implication is that we have to provide adequate education, but not the same education, per se. So what would adequate mean under the new Common Core of Standards for ELLs, given the com increasing complexity for non-English language learners, right? So what, what would be, is adequate more? Is it less? I mean, what yeah. does adequate mean well, in this context? Yeah. In, in this case, I mean, it, it's, it's actually appropriate, not appropriate, adequate. But, sorry, yeah. Appropriate, so, yeah. So it's tailored. It, yeah. the, 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 I, I guess that's really the right word to, yeah. to use, that it, it's mm -hmm. tailored, not a one-size-fits-all, uh -huh. right? Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I think of the standards movement as, as basically setting the you know setting the bar for where you want equality mm -hmm. 
and it's been raised, which is which makes it really difficult. Although it may be raised so so high that nobody will meet them, and therefore it will all be equal. Mm -hmm. We'll all be equally <laughs> poor at meeting the common core, but that's not the sense of equality in which it's intended. Uh, but um, so I, I I see it more as as um, it doesn't matter how you get there, but the the results have to to be um, equitable, and uh, and how you get there has to be somehow addressed to the particular needs um, and strengths of students, and and uh, you know, and unless you do that, you won't you won't get there. But I, I see the standard as being, you know, setting the out the goals for the outcomes, not necessarily how you get there. Okay. Uh, but they raise very big challenges in terms of the language content because the, the linguistic composition of the content, because that's it's it's a very challenging set of set of standards. Yes. For English language learners, is it just English language proficiency you're looking at, or are you looking at academic language? I think English language proficiency is meant to mean the language. I mean, technically, what it is 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 it's. I mean, it's probably undefinable, but it is supposed to be a, um, a level of English language proficiency such that when you've attained it, you're no longer handicapped by virtue of your class, that is by virtue of being an English language learner, and so it would have to kind of butt right up to the language that's necessary for content learning. So, I mean, you know, wh one way you, you would define this is if you were a student um, and you're an English language learner, and if, if she were another student and she's not, um, you should be able to receive the same instruction and not be handicapped in any way. And so that, that would have to include some academic... I, I'm sorry, this sounds so weirdly technical, but it's... <laughs> Yes. So <clears throat> I'm looking at the image that you have up there, and it reminds me of a, uh, the last couple of summers I've taken my own children, who are now three and six, on road trips, gone camping, gone to different kinds of places. And my wife and I have noted at the end of those, we watched the both language and content spike in their development after those trips. Right? Mm -hmm. There's no classroom, there's no anything. It is the, the rich, real experiences that you referred to earlier. Mm -hmm. So. It, from a curriculum instruction standpoint, where, where are you hoping to see this national dialogue go to push on our kind of a uh, expanded definition of the kinds of learning experiences that our students, as opposed to <coughs> the way many teachers currently define it is, I need differentiation, which means I need to bring mm -hmm. eight different versions of an article, and that's how they see meeting those needs. Right, and, and I think this kind of fits into the whole criticism, I think, appropriate of, of you know, the the Common Core leading to narrowing of the curriculum, just like the the, the standards from No Child Left Behind also had had an effect. I mean, into sort of reading and, and math and, and sucking up most of the time for and, and removing all the other enriching things <coughs> that one might one might have. And you know, within the school context, that could be art and music and other experiences. Outside of school, it could be things like like that. Um, and I think the uh, I mean, I think that's appropriate. It, it's just the the discourse right now is so focused on on that. Which I mean, it's the same reason I said you know use things like world class, etc. 
competitive economy, et cetera, as a within quotes, because that's that's certainly the the the, the lingo that's that's being used. Um, at the same time, I, I I do think that you know I, I work a lot with uh, a small school district outside Fresno, Sanger, uh, that, which has had very good results in on these standardized tests with with English language learners. Um, but they're the first to tell you that this gives them a focus, but they do a lot more. But this is sort of a an entry point into uh, reform and supporting their students. And so I think I think that's you know that you don't want to get stuck in that spacing just because the standards say this is what it is. That's the only thing you can do. The only problem is that the capacity of the system may may end you end you up there because that's you know either that's all you can do that's all the resources that you have etc in which case they will take priority uh, yes behind you um, I have a question about uh, how we get there in terms of promising programs assuming that you and your colleagues get the common core standards right or mm -hmm. close to right as possible uh, online blended programs <coughs> I'm seeing coming in from other countries that have been teaching English in China or Turkey or elsewhere uh, districts like Sangra, are there certain places you can point to that some of us could look at for not necessarily the answer, but promising practices? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, that, that, I mean, I, you know, Sangra is a good good example. Um, and I, uh, Karen Thompson back there has uh, help, helped write an article for Ed Leadership with the, folk, the district leaders at Sangra um, describing their, their practices. Um, but it, it is definitely not a, and, th and Sanger folks are the first to tell you that theirs isn't the magic bullet. And they've figured out ways, I mean, th they don't want people to come in and say, okay, well, give me the list of things that you do, we want to go and do this list, that it's really about culture development at the site base and, at, and what the district can do to help sites develop their own internal capacity. And, um, and and you know the problem is that there are just not too many uh, Sangers out there. In the larger districts, people often point to Long Beach and the Garden Grove as sort of districts that are serving English learners fairly well. Um, what all of them seem to have is is continuity in, in leadership and the district culture, um, and you don't get the kind of rockiness that you see in other other. Uh, districts, um, even though they, they go through their transition too, and, and they go through a lot of, uh, at least Sanger does a lot of um, succession planning and lead internal leadership development to try to get, um, you know, kind of their principles into district leadership positions. So I think there's a lot to learn from, from that. There was a question back in the back with the apple. Yeah. Um, In a way, not to bypass the language, but to give a shared resource for pointing at the problem of things that isn't all language based. Mm -hmm. So, do you see both? Do you think that would be an effective area? And are people doing work in that? And then, second is, if so, do these new standards kind of give entree to being able to leverage that? Yeah, we'll we'll see where how how far that goes. I I think. Um, yeah, our, our math group, we have these three different work groups, the math, science, and English language arts right now that are, that are working on kind of deconstructing it both from the content and language perspective. And the, the math group is very much going in that direction of saying, oh, well, text takes so many different forms in math. 
you know, you shouldn't take have a traditional version of, of, of text, and and certainly technology affords lots of <coughs> lots of alternative simulation, etc. Um, so I, I think so, but I, I, you know, I think the big constraint is going to be what's accessible ultimately, and so you know, we hope that the assessment consortia can become imaginative and creative and, and somewhat open-ended, uh, uh, open-minded. Um, unfortunately, the time constraints on these on these consortia is not that great, right? The assessments by 14, which is in three years, in three years. <laughs> so that's a that's a problem. Ilana? Yeah. Um, you, you, you went over um, the challenges you think of the common core, but I'm wondering if you could talk, I mean, talk a little bit about this, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the opportunity you see in it. Um, just from listening to you, it sounds like there's going to be so much more of an emphasis on language for all students. And I'm wondering how you think that's going to apply and maybe make instruction feels more integrated and more I, I thought I was talking about the opportunities. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, um, no, the uh, I did frame them as, as challenges, and 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 you're right. I mean, the, the well, as a as an experimental psycholinguist, I, I you know I welcome sort of the op opportunity to think about what that overlap is, uh, and bringing language more to the to the forefront. And I think that's 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 important. Um, I also think that the uh, uh, the there's some I, I think one of the, mo the the most important pieces of English language arts Common Core standards is referring to literacy standards in history, social studies, and science. Um, and the so it, it really fully brings in the content uh, expertise into English language arts and, and links them. Um, and I think that's, you know, at, at English language learners aside, bringing in some of the, the kind of the, the <coughs> you know, the, the academic literacy issues within content areas, uh, and what kinds of, you know, pedagogical content knowledge, to use Lee, Lee Shulman's phrase, would be needed of, of content teachers to teach in those is, is, a, is a real opportunity. It's also a huge challenge, though. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, you know, that the uh, because most teachers don't see themselves as, as such, and et cetera. And when they think of language, they think of grammar trees, and that's not all that exciting. And so, but but it is, it's definitely a, a real opportunity area. One last question here. No, but yeah. Um, it strikes me that current standards um, and the ELL <coughs> not necessarily promote bilingualism per se, and uh, for creating the flip balance by people. Um, I, I'm wondering what, what you, given that the, the, the standards that you're promoting uh, emphasize the assessment of English proficiency, do you see any role in determining proficiency in primary language, given some of the research that shows that having proficiency in your primary language Helps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, delays Alzheimer's by four years, et cetera. Yeah, <laughs> the um, yeah, and um, yeah. W one of the papers that we're we're commissioning is is really thinking about this, uh, the the implications of the Common Core standards for bilingual education programs. 
uh, we, we can use the B word because we're privately funded and not by Congress. Um, and I, I think it is really important uh, to kind of keep bringing that back in. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I think of language and, you know, so, so my, my version of what, why it is, people have different theories of why bilingualism is, has these sort of positive cognitive consequences, and, and I kind of um, equate it to um, stereoscopic vision, or, 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 or your, uh, what is that called? I, I forgot what it is, but it's your two years, you know. Having two years and, you know, ha you can, the reason why you, you can detect the location of sounds is because of the differential sounds coming to your, the speed that your two years receive signals. And that bilingualism is sort of like a constant um, paraphrasing, so to speak. You're always getting information in, in slightly different ways. Right, which gives you more depth of information, just like you know, having two two eyeballs is is always good for getting depth information, and um, and I think that that's you know wh where <coughs> where it is, and so uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, the best you can do in this current context is to talk about the native language supporting content learning, etc. Uh, it's certainly not; it, it's difficult to tie specific programs into this context, uh, partly because also, you know, states and localities are resistant to programs being, you know, pushed down. Um, I, I think what's going to have to happen, ha I mean, for, for things, just to give a longer-term perspective, I, I just don't think that um, xenophobia around bilingualism is going to abate very, very soon. Uh, in fact, it probably get worse. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, I think it's, it's going to have to go through significant, you know, relabeling, sleuthing, whatever. Uh, or, or, you know, the other thing is you could look to specific communities that support bilingualism that are quite good at doing it. San Antonio, Texas being, you know, an example, for example, or Miami. Um, places where, where bilingualism is a little more vibrant and try to grow things, you know, within those, those localities. So look local, maybe the, but certainly not federal. It's ugly there. Well, Kenji, thank you. On behalf of the Scope staff and leadership, I want to present you with a small gift and thank you for joining us oh. today. And please join me in. And this uh, is. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.